as I've said, we're beginning a, a series this summer in the book of Job. And if I'm entirely honest, as soon as I decided to preach Job, I got cold feet. I would gladly have pulled out if I could. But it's a book that I've wanted to, to preach for a while. It's not an easy book, not easy to understand. And it's certainly not easy to imagine how to, to preach it and to share it with a congregation of people. But it's an important book, important because it has to do with the subject of suffering, human suffering, and particularly the suffering of God's people. Just before I go any further with that, let me come back to that idea of the book of Job being about suffering. The book of Job, in one sense, is the Bible's fullest treatment of the subject of suffering. I think that's what most of us would imagine. If you ask a Christian, somebody who knows the Bible a little bit, what the book of Job's about, if they're able to give any answer at all, they'll give an answer something along the lines of suffering. Everybody knows that the book of Job's about suffering. People turn to this book when they are suffering. We know that the vast bulk of the 42 chapters deal with and focus on the problem of pain. So we imagine with this book of Job that suffering is the central theme. As we take a, a longer look over these next, a longer and a deeper look over these next couple of months, we'll see that that's actually not quite the case. Just as a cake isn't about eggs and flour and milk, so Job isn't about the details of suffering. The, the suffering serves as the ingredients, if you like, but that's not the overarching theme. That's not finally what this book is about. There's something else, and we're going to be introduced to that here this morning. I'm going to guess that at least a good number of us are coming to Job Cole this morning with no idea really what it's about. So let me take a, a moment to give you what I think is the simplest outline that I could possibly manage. If Graham could maybe pop that slide up on the screen for us for a moment. Job and what happened to him, that's the subject of chapters 1 and 2. We've read chapter 1. Chapters 3 to 27 are basically the record of a long conversation. It might look very long when you, you look at that number of chapters. I reckon it would take about an hour to read it. So it's, it's a chat over dinner. Job, three of his friends, talking about what's happened to Job. Then finally, or part four, there's a, a mysterious, sorry, Job gives a, a final defense of his position in part three. Part four, there's a, a mysterious new character comes on the scene, Elihu. Part five, God speaks for the first time at length. And then chapter 42, part six, gives a conclusion. I suppose all I want to flag up for you at the moment this morning is that parts one and six, the beginning and the end, pretty much tell the story. That's where the narrative is. That's where the storyline is. From chapters 3 to 41, it's a conversation, it's a dialogue, it's people talking through this subject. First of all, Job, then his friends, then Elihu, and then finally God. They all speak on the subject of Job's suffering. The important thing, and 
I want to, to share with you my approach, what I'm going to try and do. The important thing, I think, is to hold all of this together. We need to avoid treating the book as only chapters 3 to 41. Because if we do that, if we read only those chapters, we would make Job into a book that's simply about suffering. People debating back and forward the, the rights and the, the, the issues surrounding human suffering. But it's, it's more than that, and it's different than that. So we mustn't do that. We need to avoid reading only chapters 1 and 2 and 42 um, to, to look at the story, to look at what happened, and let that be the explanation of what's happened to Job without entering at length with Job into his suffering. So let's do what we always try to do here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, and that is not come with our preconceived ideas and our set agenda, but let's look at the whole of this book and see what it is that God would teach us through it. Job was a good man. Verse 1. Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. By the way, I haven't given you a page number yet. It's page 509. It would be very helpful at this point if you did have it open in front of you in the Bible there in the pew. Page 509. Job's a good man. And he's a man who had lots of good things. We're told in verses 2 and 3 that he had seven sons, three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. That sounds impressive. I, I don't really know much about agricultural life. By my standards, this sounds impressive. But just in case there's any doubt in our minds, the narrator goes on to tell us that Job is the greatest man among all the people of the East. Job is a good man who has many good things. Sometimes when God gives people a lot of good stuff, ironically, this good stuff ends up being the thing that distracts them from him. Sometimes we find people, they get caught up in their wealth, in their lifestyle, in trying to give their kids what they deem to be the best. They push God into the background. But not Job. Verses 4 to 5, we're told about a humble commitment to God. He brings his children before the Lord and he presents sacrifices on their behalf. So Job's a good man who's received many good things from God and he's remained faithful even with all that. I'm not sure what you made of the, the rest of chapter 1 as we read it. I, I think there's very little like it that would compare with it in the whole of the Bible. One day the angels, or the sons of God as they're called in the Hebrew, come and they present themselves before the Lord. It's a bit like a cabinet meeting. All those whom God has given authority in the universe uh, gather together. And at the very least, that biblical imagery, even if we don't entirely understand it, It'll remind us that we live in a world where there's a, there are very real powers, very real spiritual powers at work. But immediately we see that they're all under the authority of God. Among these gathered spiritual powers, there's a being Satan, or more literally, the Satan, because the name Satan means the accuser. 
And the Lord says to Satan, where have you come from? Oh, he says, just doing stuff here and there, the usual. It's not stated here, but I think it's implied that Satan's not too impressed with what he sees on the earth. For all those countless human beings whom God's created, all created for a glorious relationship with him, with the living God, there's nothing there that catches Satan's eye, nothing impressive. They're weak, they're compromised, they're sinful. They're not much to write home about. Same old, same old, same old. The Lord soon picks up on Satan's implicit challenge. He asks, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He's blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan, look at this guy. He's great. He's exactly the kind of worshiper, of follower that I've always longed for. Satan's not impressed. He says, what? Him? A true worshiper? You're kidding, aren't you? You've blessed him and his family. You've given him wealth beyond imagining. This guy's never suffered any loss. He's a fair weather believer, if you ask me. He's only loyal to you because you've given so much to him. Take away all the blessings you've given him. Then we'll see if his faith's real. Take it away and we'll, he'll curse you. We'll see that his heart is just like the heart of everyone else on the earth. You see, your majesty, your world is ruined. Not a believer in sight. Shame, isn't it? You can almost hear the sneer in Satan's voice. Do you see what's going on here? Satan has challenged the Lord to a bet. I bet you that Job will curse you if you take your blessings away from him. We're not used to that sort of thing happening in our scriptures. And just when we're getting over the initial shock of Satan offering this bet to the Lord, we're shocked to the core by the Lord's response. You're on, he says. You can take anything you want from him. But you're not to lay a finger on Job. Isn't that shocking? The storytellers told us in verse 1 that Job is blameless. That's not only his perspective because God himself has held Job up as a model believer. He doesn't deserve to suffer as he's about to. So we know right from the outset that Job's suffering is not going to be a punishment for unforgiven sin in his life. Try to log that and remember it. This permission that God gives Satan is shocking for another reason. He didn't have to give it. God's in control. Satan isn't his equal. At best, Satan's a part of God's counsel. He is God's Satan, as Luther once put it. And yet this God who's in control says to Satan, off you go. And make Job suffer loss. 
Are you shocked by that this morning? We should be. The Auschwitz survivor, Harold Kushner, wrote a best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in this book, he solves or tries to solve the problem of pain. The way he does it is essentially by saying that God is doing his best, that it's not his fault that he doesn't manage to to erase and eliminate suffering. It's not as if he's all-powerful after all. And that's how Kushner gets God off the hook for the trouble and the pain in our world. The book of Job doesn't allow that. God's word doesn't let God off the hook as easily as that. 